page 232, if you are using the uh, Bible in the Purack, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 10. As you turn there, I'll remind you that uh, last week uh, we were talking about, um, well, we were talking about donkeys, a lot about donkeys. Uh, Saul had been sent on a journey to find lost donkeys, um, seemed like just a, a frustrating errand that many of us have uh, in our lives, and yet God turned it into something uh, miraculous, uh, something marvelous, in that it was the means by which Saul encountered Samuel, the prophet, who um, uh, would soon anoint him to be king. So it, it kind of kicked off this series of events that would lead to Saul becoming king. Now, he was not proclaimed king. Last chapter, that is what we are reading about today. So chapter 10, this is where Saul now officially, not privately, just with Samuel, but officially with the whole nation, will be proclaimed king of Israel. This is God's word, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this anointed you to be prince heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin Zelza. And they'll say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand." After that, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man." Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, Saul did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. 
And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised They despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Thus far, God's word for us, back to verse 1. As we begin the chapter, I want us to see that it begins by asserting that Saul is a Messiah. Saul is a Messiah. That's the first of three things I want us to see in this chapter, that Saul is a Messiah. Then we're going to see how he reacts to that that reality of messianic um, position in the nation. And then thirdly and finally, how others react, how others respond. So Saul is Messiah, how he reacts and how they respond. Now, we are used to hearing this term in the definite, right? The Messiah, um, referring to Jesus Christ. But I'm saying Saul is a Messiah, not capital M, but lowercase m. There were, in fact, many Messiahs in the nation of Israel because Messiah only means an anointed one, somebody that is anointed with oil, most, almost always as a representation of God's spirit at work in their lives, equipping them for a particular place of leadership within the nation. There were three offices that were all anointed with oil, the prophet, the priests, and now the kings. Um, and so what do we find at the start of the story? In verse 1, Samuel's taking a flask of oil, he's pouring it on Saul's head, and then he says, has not the Lord anointed, in the Hebrew, Meshach, it's where we get the word Messiah, anointing. Uh, has not the Lord messiah you to be prince over his people? And so again, it's uh, the symbol of God's spiritual empowerment. And we find that then in verse 6, where Samuel promises, you look there with me, uh, in verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you'll be turned into another man. You'll be capable of doing things you can't do on your own, and that's what we find in verse 10. Now you drop down to verse 10, and we see Saul doing something that he's not done before, and indeed it's something that he could not do apart from God's work in him, and that is that he prophesies. 
The language of God's spirit rushing upon God's servants is not new to Samuel, to the book of Samuel. Um, Back in Exodus, at the construction of the tabernacle, one of the Israelites is equipped with God's spirit to um, accomplish that work of building the tabernacle. This is Exodus 31. You don't need to turn there. Uh, Verses 2 through 5, God says, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs and to work in gold, silver, bronze, and to work in every craft. The phrase, the Spirit of God rushing upon someone, is also used three times in the book of Judges when it refers to Samson. Three times we're told uh, that the Spirit comes upon him, usually right before he does something amazing, some uh, feat of, of of strength. It's the sign that his position as a judge in the nation isn't something he picked for himself. God's equipping him for it. It's a legitimate divine appointment. And so that's what we're reading about here at the beginning of this chapter. Saul has been appointed by God to be the king. It's a divine appointment because he has God's spirit. And when David prays in Psalm 51, which we've, sent, or we've sung, and we, it was even in our prayer of confession, take, not back, take back not your Holy Spirit from me, take not your Holy Spirit. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about a divine appointment. David was not a theological Arminian. He didn't think you could lose your salvation, right? Uh, he believed in what now we call the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. Think of what he says in Psalm 23, Surely, I believe that, I'm not doubting this, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So David doesn't think you can lose your salvation. That's not what he's praying for or praying about in Psalm 51. He's praying that the Lord would not remove the spirit that empowers him to be king over Israel. And remember, this is after his sin with Bathsheba. He would deserve for that to be removed from him. He's saying, don't remove the divine appointment from me as you did one time with Saul. Saul has the spirit rushing upon him here, but we know later God removes that spirit and he rejects Saul as king eventually. So all of that to say, the spirit language here is about equipping and appointing Saul. It is not about conversion. It's not about regeneration. This isn't saying that Saul then became a, a Christian. Less clear, though, is the reference to Saul having a changed heart in verse 9. What does it say in verse 9? When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Well, that does sound a lot like regeneration, uh, regeneration language found in the Bible. And so the question inevitably becomes, if you haven't asked it, um, uh, I'm surprised. Many people, most people ask at some point, and there's a lot of books that deal with this. Was Saul a believer? Was Saul converted? Um, those who argue against Saul's conversion would say, with a new heart will come new obedience, right? You'll know them by their fruit. And we never really see in Saul's life um, obedience or trust in the Lord that's even lacking in this chapter. So there's been a lot of ink that's spilt uh, with people debating this question, was Saul converted? I I don't know. Uh, Persuasive arguments are made on either side. And if it bothers you not knowing if Saul's converted or not, let me just remind you of this uh, essential fact, it does not matter if Saul was converted. It matters if you're converted. That's what matters. 
Um, we are to work out our own faith with fear and trembling, not somebody else's faith with fear and trembling. What matters today, right now, as you sit listening to me, is your relationship with God. Do you have a new heart? Have you been changed? Have you gone from the old man to the new man? Do you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you? That doesn't need to be a question mark in your life. Well, we don't know about Saul or other people in the Bible. I wonder if they were really converted. You can be certain if you are converted. It's simple. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling? Do you say, I don't have anything, but Jesus has it all? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need to, to, to doubt. You don't need to wonder. You don't need to, to question, am I a Christian? You can know that answer with 100% certainty even today, right now. And that's what matters. This chapter is not trying to make a point about Saul whether or not he was a born-again believer, it's trying to make a point that he was the one anointed and appointed by God to be the first king of Israel and uh, to be this Messiah figure. And to confirm what would be such an extraordinary and staggering fact to Saul is the fulfillment of this series of three really kind of bizarre um, predictions, right? He'll run into two men uh, who'll tell him where the lost donkeys are. He'll receive two loaves of bread from travelers near Bethel, uh, finally near his hometown, he'll prophesy. And all those things come true. They're very odd, very specific events. They come true, just as Samuel says. And that confirms to us readers, um, ancient Israelite hearers of the story, but especially to Saul, this, this is the real deal. You really are uh, anointed and appointed by God to be this Messiah figure, one to lead God's people. So the first thing, God, uh, God uh, picks Saul He's the chosen one, the man of God's choosing to deliver his people from his enemies, to be this Messiah. Secondly, how does Saul respond to that? What, what's his response to this? Well, it's not a very good one. It's not a stellar response. Look at verses 14 and 16. Um, there we see that his uncle, now that he's back home, wants to know about his encounter with the prophet. And what does the text say? It says that he tells his uncle about the donkeys, but there in verse 16... But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. How is that? How can that be? How can it be that uh, he doesn't share the most significant aspect of the conversation with his uncle? I was thinking it would be sort of like being invited to a private dinner with the President of the United States, and you have no idea why you've been invited, but you go, and you know, your family and friends, they all, they all know that you got this crazy invitation and you're there with, with the president, and he, at one point in the, in the conversation, invites you to serve on his staff. Maybe he wants you to be chief of staff, or maybe he wants you to take on secretary of state or something like that, something crazy. And you come home, and so your family's like, tell us about that dinner with the president. Like, what did he want? What was it about? And you say, truthfully, well, like, we really we talked about the weather. Yeah, you did, I'm sure, maybe for the first five minutes. And you never share kind of the whole point of the, the encounter. You never say, well, and then he actually offered me a job. It, it would be sort of like that. Can you imagine not sharing the, 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 the biggest aspect of that conversation? Well, maybe we could, could excuse it and say that Saul's silence is a sign of his being overwhelmed. Maybe you've been there too. You come home from work where you, it was a bad day. Maybe you learned something that was really disturbing about new policies at work, and you're quiet. You're muted at home because you're processing it yourself before you you tell your family you're still kind of mulling it over. Maybe, maybe. That would be giving 
Saul um, the benefit of the doubt here, but I think we should still say that it's concerning when the king for God's people isn't interested in talking about God's kingdom. We should be concerned when the king for God's people isn't interested in talking about God's kingdom. Furthermore, at the end of the chapter, when Saul is officially selected and proclaimed king publicly, what is he doing? He's hiding, right? He's hiding. Samuel has assembled, this is starting in verse 17, the entire nation. He's assembled the entire nation back to Mizpah. That's the same location where Samuel called for a nationwide fast and uh, called a repentance. And uh, now... It's a time for a coronation event. The crowd is filled with eager anticipation. What they've been longing for is finally here. Uh, but notice, Samuel's not going to pronounce uh, the new king uh, before he pronounces another word of rebuke. Thus says the Lord, verse 18, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you, But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. You can imagine that might have killed the mood slightly, right? They're all excited. It's this party, this big event for coronation. And then that's how Samuel opens up the event. Uh, He's reminding the people that the occasion for the assembly is actually a shameful one. We're here because you're disobedient. We're here because you're ungrateful. That's what this is really about. Uh, one of the, the memories, I might have shared this before in an uh, illustration, but one of the memories that is shamefully etched into my mind uh, that, that I thought of as I read this is back in seventh grade, a movie that I really liked had finally just come out on DVD. I'd been waiting. I saw it in theaters, and I wanted to see it again, that I had some money put away, and so I wanted to buy it the day it came out, and so I asked my dad to drive me to the store to get it. Um, I was, was going to pay for it. I thought, all I need is a ride, and he said, No. And I thought, why not? It can't be that you don't want me to see the movie. You took me to it in theaters. And it's not because I'm asking you to pay for it. I have the money. I just, come on, you know, 13-year-olds. I just need the ride. Like, give me a few more years and I can go. But right now, I need you to take me. And he kept saying, no, no. And I'm getting frustrated. And he, he finally says, this is in December, he says, you know, Christmas is coming around. And maybe somebody wants to get it for you. Hint, hint. I did not pick up the hint. And I'm putting my foot down. And I'm like, I just can't believe you, Dad. And he says, John, you need to just go to your room, okay? So I go to my room, I storm off, and a few minutes later, he, he barges in, and he, he tosses the, the DVD that I wanted onto my bed, and he says, there, you have it. Are you happy? And walks away. Well, no, I'm not happy, right? Uh, if I had been obedient, and if I had been trusting in my father, um, and, and if I had just picked up the hint, right, in a few days, I could have had the gift wrapped in, in, in wrapping paper. Instead, I got it wrapped with shame, right? There, I had what I wanted, but I, I wasn't happy. Maybe you've been there before. You got what you wanted, but not the way you wanted it. That's how Israel is meant to, to feel at this moment. Here we are. We're getting a king. It's because we're disobedient. It's because we're ungrateful. So now as their, their heads are hanging low, Samuel orchestrates the election of Saul as king by lot. Um, making decisions by casting lots is not uncommon in the ancient world. They don't do this out of superstition. They do this actually out of a trust in God's sovereignty. They believe that this is how he will orchestrate who's to be king, and that's exactly what God does. And so if you look at verse 20, this is kind of how the process works. You can imagine Samuel has sort of like he has a hat, and he puts in 
uh, 12 pieces of paper, and on, on, uh, on each piece of paper is one of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So he pulls out the paper, and what does he find? Benjamin. Okay, now he gets a new hat, and he puts in the names of all the clans of Benjamin. Now this is a lot more names, and he pulls it out, and we find uh, that he pulls out the, the clan of the Matrites. Now he takes a final hat, the biggest hat of all, and he puts in the name of all the men of that clan, and he pulls out we're not surprised, Saul. Saul has been chosen by Lot. They can't find him. They even go back to God and say, is there another hat? Is there a fourth hat we're waiting for here? Is there another man that we're looking for? No, it's Saul. He's, he's hiding, not hiding very well. I think this is meant to be humorous um, or perhaps embarrassing for later generations that this man who is a whole head taller than everybody in Israel is trying to hide behind a pile of suitcases Um, I think it's the equivalent of a really pathetic draft-dodging attempt. And it's at this point, Samuel makes the grand proclamation of verse 24, a very important verse. Look there with me. Verse 24, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. There's none like him. Uh, Samuel's underscoring the point that they really wanted a king like the nations. Well, we found you one who looks the part, this, this tall, handsome, impressive man. Nobody else in the nation like him. I, however, considering the fact that he's saying this after they found him hiding, I think there's some sarcasm here, right? This tall, strong, impressive man hiding like a coward, none like him. Nope, this is who you get, Israel, a gigantic coward, this seems to be what the chapter is teaching about Samuel's reaction to, or Saul's reaction to his own anointing, that he is shrinking back from the calling that God has given him. God says, you're to be Messiah, and Saul says, no, thank you. Compare that with Jesus' response to his calling. You know, Saul can't accept, he can't receive the calling given to him. What does Jesus say? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He doesn't hide from it at all. Saul uh, runs away from a throne. Jesus runs to a cross. Luke chapter 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Or Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And it's this that should cause all of us to say, not in sarcasm like uh, Samuel, but with the utmost reverence, to save Jesus, truly there is none like him. You know, this is why in the Old Testament we're given such detailed accounts of the prophets and the priests and the kings, of these messiahs, so that when we get to the Gospels, We can take Jesus and we can place him right next to that long line of little messiahs and we look at him compared to them and we say, truly, there is none like him. Truly, there's no one merciful like him. No one kind like him. No one as wise as he is. Truly, there's none as powerful, none as good, none as willing, none as able. We think of Saul, we think of David, we think of Solomon, Elijah, Elisha. And as soon as Jesus is there in the lineup, we say, there's none like him. None like him. 
And I wonder, friends, if that's how you have received the news that Jesus Christ is the chosen one of the Lord, is the true Messiah. This chapter, although it's saying something about how Saul responded to his messianic calling, it really does want to say something about how we respond or how we react to the Lord's messianic calling of his servant. In other words, just as important to how the Messiah responds to his calling is how the people respond to his appointment. Look at verse 26. Near the end of the chapter, we see two immediate responses uh, to the proclamation of Saul's king. The first is in verse 26. It's the response of the men of valor. They have a a God-directed disposition uh, to, to, to receive Saul. It says that God had touched their hearts, and they go home with Saul. They, they follow him, but not everybody responds that way. The next response in verse 27 is scorn and derision. How can this man save us? What's really fascinating to me, if you think about it, is these, the second group, they are the ones who were correct. They were right. Saul couldn't save them. And even though they were right, the chapter is not commending their response. What does it call them? Worthless men. Worthless men, rather than commending their discernment of Saul's future, they are, the, the chapter is condemning their refusal, condemning their disobedience. They are worthless men. Why? Because the question right now is not, is Saul the right man for the job? The question is, are you willing to accept the one that the Lord has anointed? That's the question. You remember David even after he had been secretly selected as the true king, refused the opportunity to assassinate Saul. And this is the reason he gives, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against whom? What does he say? Against the Lord's anointed. God has anointed this one. God has chosen this one. I'm not going to reach out and harm him. And this is what David understood. He understood that the way you respond to God's anointed is actually how you respond to God, right? If you receive God's Messiah, you receive God. If you reject God's anointed, you reject God. So how do you receive the Lord's anointed? How have you received the Lord's anointed? Think about that. How, how have you received him? And this is not just a, do you believe in Jesus tag to the end of the sermon, right? I think we th- think that, like, how have I received him? Well, I believe him, so there we go. I'm, I'm good to go. I'm in the clear No, this is more than that. It's of the utmost importance that you believe in him, but it's a call for you to believe and to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, to embrace him. I think there are many Christians who fill up pews in churches around the country every Sunday who have done the former. They believed in him, but they haven't done the latter. They haven't embraced him. Uh, There are some here who haven't embraced him. And maybe it's... Maybe it's you. You believe in Jesus. You believe he is who he says he is. Um, But maybe he's not everything to you. Indeed, if you think about what was required for Israel to receive this Messiah, Saul, if you think about that and then compare it to the way we receive Jesus or how we're meant to receive Jesus, if we translate that into our life, I think we'll soon find out that none of us have embraced Jesus the way we're meant to. Think about it. Uh, uh, verse uh, 25, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. We've, we've been told those before as well. 
He's going to tax you. He's going to take your, your family away from you. He's going to take your lands. He might even take you. You might die. Samuel reminds the people, this is what it's about. And right after Samuel says that, these men of valor say, we're all in. We're going to go with him. We are willing to give up these things for this man because we believe he is the Lord's anointed. So it's the right thing for us to do. To, what do they do? They're putting their lives under the king, under the Messiah. His will is more important than our will. Yes, we know the risks, but we're, we're willing, we're ready to give over everything for him. Is that how you think of your relationship to Jesus? Yes, you believe in him, but do you embrace him? Do you say, say my life is under his. I'm willing for him to take whatever he needs for me. Because he's the Lord's anointed. He's the chosen one from God to rescue me from my enemies. So I'll do whatever he calls me to. I think of John Patton, the Scottish missionary in the 1800s, uh, who was ministering in the uh, what are now known as the New Hebrides Islands, uh, Vanuatu, or maybe it's now they're known as Vanuatu Islands, and he named them the New Hebrides. I can't quite recall, but he's going to a place where uh, the natives were known for their practice of cannibalism. And uh, his presbytery even begged him not to go. We don't want you to go. And this is what he said in response. It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. In the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And so he heads out, and shortly after his arrival, his wife dies of fever. A few weeks later, Peter, their um, a newborn son, she died after giving childbirth from fever, and then the son succumbed to that as well. And yet he stayed. John stayed on the island, ministered to people who threatened his life. A few years later, he was forced to leave the island due to persecution, He's back in Scotland. He meets another woman. He marries her, and he says, you know what I want us to do? I want us to go back to those islands. She says, let's do it. And this is the record from the natives as they see his ship coming back years later to where um, he had ministered previously. This is what the natives said when they saw his ship. We slew or drove them all away. We plundered their houses. We robbed them. Had we been so treated, nothing would have made us return. But they came back with a beautiful new ship with more and more missionaries And is it to trade? Is it to get money like other white men? No, no. But it's to tell us of their Jehovah God and of his son Jesus. And if their God makes them do all that, we may well worship him too. Patton put his life under the king. He was willing to die for Jesus because he loved him, because he embraced him. And we have trouble making it to worship twice on a Sunday. We have trouble getting to prayer meeting. We have other things we'd rather do. We have trouble giving up our habits of, of anger, of, of pornography, of exorbitant spending. We know Jesus has other things in mind for, for our emotions, for what we view with our eyes, for how we spend the money he's given us, but we're not interested. So maybe you say Jesus is the Messiah, you believe it, But do you embrace him? Do you love him? Do you open up his book? Do you care to hear about him, hear from him? How do you receive him? Has the Lord taken your heart? Has he drawn you to Christ? Has he opened your eyes to see him and to say, truly, there is none like him? 
Psalm 2. I want us to turn there. I don't want you to leave 1 Samuel 10 because we're going to come back and look at verse 1. We're, we're finishing up with this. But I want you to see what Psalm 2 says where it gives a similar comparison of receptions to the Messiah, similar to what we found in 1 Samuel 10. So look at Psalm 2, and we see at the opening of the psalm, in verse 2, one way people respond to the Messiah. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast off their cords from us. That's one response to the anointed Messiah. But then you look at the end of the psalm, and here's the other response. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. This is how we're meant to respond. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Kiss the Son, serve him, rejoice, take refuge in him. Well, do you remember verse 1 of our text, chapter 10? Then Samuel took a flask of oil, and he poured it on his head, and he kissed him. Samuel fulfills what Psalm 2 says is the proper reception of the Messiah, to embrace him, to serve him, to, to kiss him, to receive and to find refuge in the Lord's anointed What a difficult thing that would have been to do when the Lord's anointed was Saul. That's the one that Samuel is embracing, is kissing, is finding refuge in. The Lord has anointed and appointed him, although I don't see it. Seems like a big coward to me. What a difficult thing to kiss the Lord's anointed when the Lord's anointed is Saul. What an easy thing. What a blessed thing. What a wonderful thing to do it when the Lord's anointed is Jesus Christ. Indeed, there is none like him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, write these words upon our hearts that we would remember that you have appointed one to rescue us from all our foes and that we would receive him as the fairest of 10,000, as the one uh, and the only one uh, who can save lost sinners like ourselves. Help us to receive, to embrace, to indeed to hide ourselves in Jesus Christ. We know we will never be lacking for any good thing when we have made him what you have made him to be, the chosen one, the Messiah, our Savior. Pray this in his name. Amen.